If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning once again uh, to the book of James, to the very end of the book of James, James chapter 5. As always, uh, the passage for today is found in your insert as well as there are Bibles on the back. Grab one if you don't have a copy of God's Word this morning. We began uh, on August 25th, can you believe it? Eighteen sermons later, here we are. Perhaps you are ready and have been ready for this plane to land. I'm not sure that I'm ready uh, for this plane to land, but here we are at the end of the book of James. My prayer is that our study of this book has been impactful for you, that it has not only drawn you uh, closer, that it not only has given you a vision for the likeness of Christ, for what you are to be in being conformed to that likeness, but that you have been challenged, that you have been drawn closer to the person of Jesus as well. As I spoke about the last two weeks, that you have been drawn to the God who desires that you embrace Him through His Son in order that you might enjoy Him, that you might glorify Him forever. And so, as we come to the close of this study, the question is, how is James going to wrap it all up? What kind of conclusion will he bring? Conclusions are important, right? We learned that in high school English. I think about conclusions most every week when I put together a sermon. It's the, it's the thing that people will leave with. It's the taste that they'll have in their mouths when they walk out. And so, how will James do it, we wonder? How will he wrap up this hard-hitting practical letter? Will he send greetings to his friends as Paul does in a lot of his letters? Will he close with a benediction that brings glory uh, to the Father, the Spirit, and the Son as Paul does in Thessalonians? Or will he close with a grandiose doxology like Jude does at the end of his letter? Well, let's listen and follow along and hear what James does this morning. Just two verses. Stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Seated. <clears throat> well, what'd you think? How was that conclusion to James? I mean, it's good stuff for sure, but little bit of a letdown, kind of like the end of the series Lost, kind of like, but that's all. That's how you're going to wrap things up, James. 
I mean, did we lose the conclusion somewhere in the transmission of, of manuscripts? Could that have happened? What is James doing? Well, I think actually that it's not a mistake. I think it's actually James in his own James sort of way as we've gotten to know the half-brother of Jesus. James is actually wrapping up the entire letter. He is actually summing up the whole of his teaching for us as the people of God. It's not the way I would have concluded things. It's probably not the way that you would have wrapped up such a wonderful, hard-hitting letter. But I think, and I want to show today that James, I think, is at least leaving us with two big things to think about. And that's the taste that he wants us to have in our mouths, is the taste of truth and the taste of community. My brothers, he closes, my, my family, brothers and sisters in the household of faith, hear this. Let, let this be ringing in your ears. As we walk through these last two verses, I want to do so centered on three takeaways. And the first one is this. There is a truth to be lived. There is a truth, capital T, to be lived. Now this is a basic foundational point, but I think it needs to be stated, particularly at the end of such a truth-filled book. And I'm not sure what needs to be emphasized more, that there is absolute truth in our experience, something that is often attacked by the world out there, or that truth needs to be lived, which is something that at times we in the church can actually neglect. And what I mean by that is this, in regards to the world, the world has to give assent to all sorts of truth. The truth of gravity, the truth of slavery, that the owning of another human being is, is fundamentally wrong. And yet so many of these truths that we hold to, that the world holds to, they say are simply the result of a shared understanding of reality, right? Start talking about truth outside of a shared understanding of reality. Start talking about absolutes from a supreme being from outside of our shared understanding of reality, and people get squirrely. They want to hear nothing of that kind of truth. And then in the church, we, I think, are sometimes guilty of, of camping out so much on what we need to know on what our intellectual head needs to be filled with. We forget that we have a need for that knowledge to mean something on Monday morning, on Wednesday afternoon. And so James, in this entire letter, is teaching a people that there is a right and there is a wrong way 
to live. That faith is more than just intellectual assent. The life of faith is more than just a life of believing certain things. It's a life of a faith that works. It shows itself. There is a life. There is a truth to be lived. There is a life to be desired, a life to be emulated, a life that walks in the light, as John states. One that walks in darkness, a life that walks and lives in the fellowship of the Son, and one that ignores the Son. And my point here, brothers and sisters, is simply this, that the gospel is for life. Not just for eternal life, but for life. And so when James speaks in these verses about someone wandering from the truth, we say, yes, there is truth, and this truth is the way of Jesus. The life of faith, living in the fullness of the gospel message. Remember, the first century congregation that heard this letter they would likely have heard it in one sitting. We've taken it in small, digestible bites. But I want to review this life. And this is my chance to get you caught up on the last five months. Because this is a life that responds to trials as uncomfortable grace. Remember that long ago? Tests in our lives that are designed to transform us, not to tear us down, but to transform us. It's a life striving for joy as it recognizes its need to live dependently upon the God of wisdom. It's a life that sees money and possessions for what they are. It's a life that believes that God is good even when life gets hard, especially when life gets hard. It's a life that does the Word, not just hears the Word, but allows that Word to find root in our hearts and to bear fruit in our lives. It's a life that reflects the Father in helping the helpless. And that was just chapter one. It's a life that's free from prejudice, rejoicing in mercy rather than exalting in judgment. It's a life that guards its speech, seeking to use its words to bless rather than to wound. It's a life that recognizes that there is a war raging inside of us, that there are unmet desires that cause our quarrels and our fights and our relational fractures. It's a life that rejoices and rests in the fact that God loves you as his bride. It's a life that lives in light of God's providence, in light of God's plans for tomorrow. It's a life that worships the Lord with our wealth, a life that anticipates Jesus' coming a life that is true, letting its yes be yes and its no be no. A life that embraces the Father in prayer and the body of Christ in need. That's the life that James has been talking about. That's the life that you and I are called to live to, the truth that we are called 
to live out, and it begins with the embrace of Jesus. It flows from union with Jesus. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, that there is a truth to be lived. James is kind of assuming that that's the case. It's just my chance to review the whole book for you. But what he really wants us to talk about, what he really wants to talk about, is rescue. And that's the second truth that I want us to camp out on for a few minutes, and it's this. Not only that there is a truth to be lived, but that we are all in need of rescue. We are all in need of rescue. Now, I don't know how many of you have been in a situation where you have been rescued, like literally rescued. Some of you may have stories, harrowing stories of rescue. I know Tim Bailey has the best one among us, and you can ask him if you haven't heard it before. I remember my best story of rescue as I thought about this was when I was in Uganda on a uh, missions trip. We had a day off, and we went uh, rafting and uh, class five rapids, and I knew I was in for it when, you know, you have to wear a helmet, and then they have these incredibly ripped Ugandan kayakers on each side of each raft. And they tell you, if you get out of this raft, just bob around, and they will come and get you. And sure enough, we were going down this rapid, and the whole boat flipped, and I have never felt this experience before. Felt like I was in a giant washing machine just tumbling over and over, hoping that my head didn't hit off of a rock. And then, boop, I popped up and the rapids were there. And sure enough, uh, there was the kayak for me to grab a hold on, to be rescued, to bring back into the boat. Not that harrowing of an experience, but indeed, a rescue nonetheless. James is talking in these verses about rescue. Perhaps that's not the place you thought of yourself being in this passage when when you first heard it read to you. But look at what it says. If anyone among you, church, my brothers, the household of faith, if any of you wanders, this is us he's talking to. And if you were here for uh, the discipleship hour this morning, this is And God's providence, this is a note out of the same chord that Pastor Voles began to play this morning. As he confessed that he's a mess, as he proclaimed that we're all a mess, James reminds us that we are all in need of rescue. Now, that's not to say that it's always you, it's always you all the time, nor that you're to the same degree in need of rescue as someone else. The word translated as wandering here is any deviation from the truth. 
It could certainly include apostasy, turning your back on the person and work of Christ, and, and probably it does mean that at times. That may be specifically what James has in mind, and that brings up this whole other issue of whether someone can lose their salvation. After, if, after all, if they were among us and now they're wandering from the truth, they're headed for spiritual death, then they haven't they lost what they once had? The short answer without going down that rabbit trail is no. No, you cannot lose your salvation. As we read earlier, no, not one will be snatched out of the Lord's hands. His grace, His grip is too strong, too persistent, too enduring. Therefore, the one who wanders ultimately from the truth to the point of spiritual death has simply revealed that he or she was not truly one of us. And of course, that can certainly be the case. But I think James is talking uh, more or less about apostasy and more about life, about seeking to live in the truth. All of the life that we just went through, all of the life that we've been talking about for the last five months, that's the wandering that James is talking about, doubt, double-mindedness, lack of generosity, reckless speech, casting judgment, prejudice. You name it. Think of the ways that the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart over the past five months as you've been reminded of these words in the book of James. All of those things that plague us, all of those things that entangle us, all of those things which left unchecked can send us down a spiral of destruction. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. There are a few more profound phrases in the hymnody that we sing than that phrase. There's a great little book called Side by Side, written by Ed Welch, and he says this. He says, we spend, we being the church, we spend too much time concealing our neediness. We need to stop hiding. Being needy is our basic condition. There is no shame in it. It is just the way that it is. And so with Pastor Ed priming the pump in the nine o'clock hour, let me go a little further. Can we simply just acknowledge this fact? Can, can I just start by acknowledging this fact that I sometimes wander? Did I wallow in discouragement at times? Did I dabble in frivolity because I struggle at times to see the brightness and the glory of the Savior that I love? That I know I want, but He gets obscured sometimes in my sin? I am sometimes in need of rescue. And I have been rescued by some of you. 
It's not to say I'm drowning. It's not to say I'm turning my back and running away. I just need someone to put me back on course. And that's why the Lord has given His church, because we all are in need of rescue. Not all the time, but from time to time. One more thing for us to consider. The third truth out of these, path, or these last verses, and it's this. We are all called to be rescuers. There's a truth to be lived. We are all in need of rescue, and we are all called to be rescuers. That's the title of this sermon, The Rescuers. Notice he doesn't say, if anyone wanders, get on the phone with the elders. Call Pastor Nate. Get him to do something. That could be an option. I'm not saying that you ought not. But that's not what it says. The point is, whoever brings back a sinner from wandering saves him from spiritual death and a multitude of sins. James is saying that the, the spiritual stakes couldn't be higher. But this is how the church, this is how the community of Christ functions. And, and I know for, for some of you, this is a jolt to your system. Paul Tripp writes, for most of us, church is merely an event we attend or an organization that we belong to. We do not see it as a calling that shapes our entire life. And yet, brothers and sisters, I would argue that this is what, what James is describing for us here in very brief terms is part of what discipleship is all about. Part of what making disciples is all about. Because discipleship is focusing not just on yourself, but it's focusing on others. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." And so when we say here at Ascension, when our mission statement says the mission of APC is to be a community of worshiping, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father by the power of His Spirit and the hope of God's kingdom, this passage, this exhortation, this call to be rescuers falls under that maturing and multiplying part. But let me say this, if you're eager about this, if you're excited about this, that you are called to be a rescuer, that might actually be a problem. It's a problem, I think, because you're probably not thinking rightly about the wandering of the truth that James is speaking of here. Because James, I don't think, is talking about secondary matters. 
He's not empowering you, Christian, to rescue those who aren't eating organic or those who aren't using essential oils or those who aren't homeschooling your kids or those who aren't reformed enough. By all means, you can talk about your views on those things. They're important things to talk about, but that's not what James has in view. He has in view a behavior that has lost the gospel, that is struggling to see the life of Christ. And therefore, you ought not be eager for this. This is hard stuff. This is serious stuff. It's stuff that requires God's help and God's grace. We're all called to be rescuers, so so how do we do it? Well, let me give a pitch, a plug for Pastor Voles' class. I think that's going to be a great start. If you were here at 9 a.m., come next week. But let me, as we close, give three brief things for us to strive for and pray for as we seek to think about our rescuing. First of all, you're going to need love. You're going to need love. Simply put, you're not going to intervene into someone's life unless you love them. And and you can't manufacture love, but the gospel reality of the fact that God has moved towards you when you weren't so lovely and lovable ought to create in us a motivation to move towards others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, you knew I was going to quote this book, helps us put this in stark terms. He says, not what a man is in himself as a Christian, his spirituality and his piety constitutes the basis of our community. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. It's all centered on the gospel. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for both of us. And so he continues, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. We need love and we need to pray for love. We need to pray for compassion. We need to pray for gentleness, for a motive that is not out to shame, expose, or punish a brother or sister, but is out to restore, to rescue, to call back to life. Not only need love, but you need courage, right? Interventions are not easy. Confronting others is a scary thing. I don't like conflict. I suspect you don't like conflict. Sometimes conflict doesn't go very well. So there's a fear of man issue that needs to be dealt with. Very rarely do you come to someone and they say, oh, thank you so much for showing me that. You might be in for a fight. 
And if you confront, you might actually open yourself up to be confronted. That's pretty scary. So this whole notion of being rescuers needs to be bathed in a spirit of humility. Again, as Pastor Voles reminded us this morning, a recognition that we're both in the same place, saved by grace, messes who haven't yet figured it all out, and who are in need of others. So indeed, get the log out of your own eye before you get, go after the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Absolutely. But go with courage, recognizing that you have the Spirit of God within you. And then in weakness, in your weakness, He will show Himself strong. You need love, you need courage, and lastly, you need intentionality. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Being rescuers, I think, begins by more than just playing defense, but by building relational equity proactively in the lives of others. We've got to know each other. We've got to have thoughtful conversations. Again, Ed Welch in his book, Side by Side, a little book I commend to you, says, our task is to hold up a mirror so that others see themselves more than they see us. We tell what we have actually seen. And then he gives some he gives some cases. The other day I saw you walking down the street with Rich, someone who wasn't her husband. Is everything okay? Should I be concerned? At the church meeting today, you seem, you seem pretty angry, pretty short in your interactions. Can we have coffee this week and just talk about it? Even so much as saying that takes love, it takes courage, it takes intentionality, but that's what a rescuer does. For the last five weeks, James has proclaimed to us that there is a truth that's to be lived. There's no doubt it's hard to do. There's no doubt we're doing it with sputters and fits and starts and stops and everything in between. But praise God for His grace. Praise God for His church. Praise God for rescuers such as us. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, I'll close with this. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. May the Lord see fit to more and more build this into our lives into our culture. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this book of James, for this summation of all of those proverbial sayings, all of that wisdom that we have unpacked over these past five months. 
Father, at the end of it all, we recognize our inadequacy, our insufficiency to live the life that our Savior lived, to walk in truth and righteousness as He walked in truth and righteousness. And therefore, we declare to our own hearts and to one another that we are in need of rescue. And Father, You have given us one another to be part of that rescue mission. Show us the way. Give us the grace. Equip us in the coming weeks, in the coming months, in the coming years. Indeed, in all of our lives, to flesh out what this looks like. That we might increasingly so be made blameless as your bride for that wonderful day of your return. This I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.